Our scripture reading for today is from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. Now you have observed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings, the things that happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lestara, what persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Indeed, all who want to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted, but wicked people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving others and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it, and from or and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, on this day, may the words of my mouth And the thoughts and feelings and memories and meditations that those words elicit within our hearts be acceptable and help to make us wise and our faith stronger. In the name of Christ, we make this prayer. Amen. Most of you know that since June 12th, each sermon I've preached has had in its title the phrase, Jewels in the Attic. While the church sextons have appreciated having been spared changing the title on the sign each week in this hottest of summers, the rest of us are probably ready after nine sermons to leave the attic for a while and take up residence in the more hospitable living room of the house. Today's is the last in this series, but before we leave these sermons and I head for Maine for vacation, I want to draw the series to a close by stepping back and considering the value and role that biblical texts such as these, and in fact the Bible as a whole, can play in our life. Now a little inside baseball concerning this series. I envisioned this series and chose these passages sometime in the winter. I did so because I wanted to preach on passages from the Bible that are not very familiar, that preachers and teachers and readers often pass by as if they are tucked away in the attic, rarely brought down into the living room for reading or family conversation. I wanted to preach on passages that might initially strike us as mundane and boring, which, to be honest, much of the Bible does for many people much of the time. I wanted to preach on passages which have some troublesome aspects to them, particularly in the case of two of the passages we read this summer in the way they depict women and assign them to secondary roles. And in the process of picking these passages, I wanted to ask, is it possible that even within biblical passages that are either boring or offensive, 
There can be an element that sparkles like jewels. What I did not anticipate when I picked these passages earlier this year was the events that have dominated our nation and world this summer. The escalation and dehumanization of language and rhetoric in our presidential campaign. The increased terrorist attacks and what seems like even greater variety to their targets and their brutality. The additional killing of young black men by police and police by young black men. I did not anticipate, in other words, that this would be one of the heaviest, saddest, and most tense summers that we as a nation have seen in a long time. Thus, on a weekly basis, some of the passages have had more immediate life than I could have anticipated when I selected them and the topics they contain. The qualifications of leaders, speech and conduct, the social safety net, the role and treatment of women, civility and community. In one sense, this lack of anticipation on my part answers one question of the series by saying, yes, we can be amazed at the way Scripture can speak to what is going on in the world even when we do not look for it to do so or plan for it to do so. To be honest, I have been amazed each week. At no point in my preparation this summer did I ever feel I needed to look for something that would sort of keep these texts from being boring or irrelevant or to sort of prop them up. The stories I told surrounding them came to me in the writing of the sermon, sermons as if the text gave them birth after years of gestation in my own life. I frankly even wish that sometimes I had had to struggle to enliven some of these texts. None of us would have minded a little more calm, even boredom, than we have had in our nation this summer. For this final sermon in the series, I want to look at one sentence that is spread across two verses in 2 Timothy. One of the pastoral epistles from which this series has been drawn. In the process of looking at these verses, I want to share with you a major way that the Presbyterian Church views Scripture, a way that I personally view Scripture, and a way I hope that Scripture can come to have a deeper meaning for you in your life and in your faith. Some of you who have taken classes from me will have heard some of what I am going to say, but as is always the case in the process of learning, it won't hurt to hear it again. The verses are 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. They're printed under the sermon title in your bulletin. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching for reproof, for correction, 
for training in righteousness so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. So what does this one passage mean? What we now call the Old Testament developed over hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. By the time Jesus was born, the Judaism into which he was born had moved from a focus on sacrifice in the temple to a focus on the reading and study of scripture in the synagogue. As the study of scripture became central to Judaism, the rabbis and the scholars who were custodians of scripture came to share four assumptions about each biblical story, law, poem, saying, or prophetic oracle that they read. Each text, they believed, had one meaning, though the meaning was often coded or hidden or cryptic. Each text was relevant. Each text was perfect, meaning in our terms historically or scientifically accurate or legally binding. And each text was given by God. These four assumptions, which were in place before Jesus was born, they were not invented by American fundamentalism in the 1920s, These four assumptions remain alive and well in many forms of Judaism and Christianity today, particularly in communities that read the Bible literally and only literally. From the 14th century Renaissance through the 17th century Enlightenment through the 19th century theories of Charles Darwin, the rise of a particular standard of scientific and historical accuracy began to call into question the historic or scientific validity of the scriptures. And perhaps more importantly, it raised questions as to whether or not the purpose of many texts was to present history or science in any modern sense of the word. This development led to three distinct reactions in the ways that people in the church read scripture. Some said if the Bible is not historically or scientifically accurate, I will not believe it and I will not believe the God behind it. So they exited the faith. Others maintained that if there appeared to be a contradiction between the Bible and science and science or history, the fault lay with the limits of human knowledge, not with the text or with God who was its source. Still others said the Bible does not have to be historically or scientifically accurate on all accounts. That's not the purpose for which it was written. It can still have meaning and relevance. It can still point us to God. 
And therefore, we will trust and accept the Bible as scriptures of our faith, no matter what particular understanding of science and history our era might have. Now, for the most part, oversimplifying, the Reformed tradition out of which we come, the denomination in which we worship, the clergy as trained in that tradition, represent, largely speaking, this third view. So if the purpose of Scripture is not primarily to convey history or science, then what role does it and can it play in our life and in our faith? In the Presbyterian Church, the ordination vow that is taken by ministers and elders and deacons, you hear it every year when we do an ordination service, says the following about Scripture. Do you accept the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be by the Holy Spirit, the unique and authoritative witness to Jesus Christ in the Church Universal and God's Word to you? To answer this question, what is the role of Scripture for us as Presbyterians? I'm driven back to 2 Timothy. All Scripture is inspired by God. Now think for a minute about this word, inspired. If you slice it in two, it means in Spirit, inspirited. What this word is saying is that the Spirit, in our case the Holy Spirit, lies within Scripture, within the text. In the New Testament Greek and in the Old Testament Hebrew, the word that is translated into English as Spirit is the same word as wind or breath. Thus, when the writer of 2 Timothy says that all Scripture is inspired or inspirited by God, the writer is saying that God breathes through Scripture. God provides life in and to and through the text of Scripture. As our ordination vow says, this is by the Holy Spirit. This is by God's breathing. And God does this breathing through all the literary forms that are contained in Scripture. Through poetry, narrative, history, law, proverb, parable, and cultic regulation. God breathes through the instructions of building Noah's ark as well as for putting the finishing touches on the temple. God breathes through the, through the genealogies of Genesis and Matthew and Luke as well as through the endless list of names and places and people in the book of Numbers. All scripture is inspired by God. God breathes through all Scripture. 
The life of God is found through all texts by the Holy Spirit, even the texts that are boring and even the texts that are offensive. In addition, not only does God breathe through all Scripture, but God's breathing occurs through all the stages of the development and presentation of Scripture to us. Thus, God breathes through Scripture when it is given birth in the writers of the storyteller's mind, when it is told around the campfire and retold parent to child, generation to generation, which is the way these stories were passed down for centuries. God breathes when the stories are finally written down, when they're copied, when they're edited, when they're collected in a book, when they are read or sung or told or enacted in worship. God breathes when they are affirmed by the community as this, these scriptures being their holy scriptures. God breathes as these scriptures are translated, as they're studied, as they're interpreted, as they are sung in hymns or anthems, as they are prayed, as they are preached, as they are taught in classrooms. God breathes as these scriptures are acted out by children dressed as shepherds and angels in children's pageants in December every year in every church on the face of the earth. God breathes as these stories are depicted in paintings and sculptures and poems and plays, as they are needle-pointed and framed and placed on our kitchen wall, as they are whispered at the gravesite, as they are read as the last thing before we turn our lamps out at night, as they are read aloud by people who love us, that are seated next to us, as the last words spoken in our presence before we sleep with our ancestors. Through all these stages of the development of Scripture and through all these ways we receive it, God is breathing. To limit God's breathing to texts that that are historically or scientifically consistent with the way our age happens to understand science or history is indeed to seek to limit the breath of God. God breathes through Scripture beyond all our current ways of knowing and thinking. Thus this summer, when a text about such mundane matters as manners of speech and conduct was the text for the day, God breathed through it to speak to the corruption of language that is epidemic in our culture and in our campaign for the highest office in the land. God breathes beyond any human choices we might make as to what text to preach on one, 
on what day, as to what text to read as our family gathers around Christmas dinner, as to what text we read as we sit by the bedside of a loved one. So finally, if Scripture is that through which God breathes for us, how can it breathe for us more or better? How can we make it more a part of our lives? I offer three very brief suggestions. First, choose a congregation in which Scripture is central to its life. By coming here, you have done that. Second, study it in a class or a group that works for you. I've got to be honest with you and say that this sermon's really just one long commercial for my Old Testament <laughs> class coming up this fall. Some churches do minutes for mission, we do commercials. But honestly, if you are at a point in your life, or if you can, with some commitments and adjustments, get to a point in your life where you can devote an hour or so, or hour or so a week to reading, and two hours on most Sunday afternoons for about six months to attend class, most of what I have spoken in this sermon will begin to come to life for you. I trust that God will breathe for you as you encounter this book with others. I can almost promise that that will happen. And third, try to get to a point where, like prayer or exercise, the reading of Scripture becomes a part of your life that you will miss if you skip it. Once you engage Scripture through a class, and perhaps even if you don't, over time, and I stress over time, you can slowly begin to be comfortable reading the Bible on your own. And you will find God breathing for you at the most unpredictable times and places as the people and stories within it become as much a part of your life as the nursery rhymes or Dr. Seuss or the children's stories we learned growing up. Last summer, Maggie and I on vacation, I've got vacation on the mind, but last summer we spent two weeks on a beach in Hawaii with her sister and brother-in-law. Now their pattern is to sit every day under a cabana, a cabana, whatever they're called. And since we were their guests, we followed that pattern. I therefore got an enormous amount of reading done. If you can picture this, now I didn't have the black robe on, but if you can picture this. One afternoon I was in the lounge chair, sunglasses on, under the big umbrella, you know, melted Mai Tai nearby, reading, of all things, Machiavelli's The Prince, a 16th century manual of the darkest arts of politics. 
I only tell you these things because I trust you. (laughs) On the frontispiece of the edition that I had was an excerpt from a letter that Machiavelli wrote to someone named Francesco Vittori. In it, this is what Machiavelli said. When evening arrives, he said, I return home and I go into my study. I take off my everyday clothes full of mud and filth and I put on regal and courtly garments and I enter the ancient courts of ancient people where lovingly received by them I feed myself on the food that is mine alone and for which I was born, where I am not ashamed to speak with them and to ask them about reasons for their actions. And they, in their humanity, respond to me. And for four hours at a time, I do not feel any boredom, I forget every difficulty. I do not fear poverty. And I am not terrified at death. I transfer myself to them completely. Now Machiavelli is describing, I believe, the experience of reading the classics. He enters the lives of their characters. He transfers himself to them completely. And then presumably, he emerges from his reading, goes to bed, gets up the next morning, goes to work, somewhat transformed and strengthened by what he has read. If you will do the same thing with Scripture, I can almost promise that over time, this same transformation and strengthening can happen for you. Enter your study, open your Bible, give yourself to its characters, allow yourself to enter the strange new world within the pages of Scripture. And when you come back, you won't be quite the same. Amen.